KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Bernie Madoff died in prison this week at the age of 82. Of course, Madoff was the mastermind behind that ridiculously large Ponzi scheme that defrauded thousands of people to the tune of billions of dollars. It was a fraud uncovered in the midst of the financial crisis back in 2008. Now, we wanted to look back on the Madoff scandal in the wake of his death and talk about if something like this could happen again. For this conversation, we caught up with Raphael Doria. He is a professor of law at Temple University Beasley School of Law. Amongst the many subjects he has taught, securities regulation, great person to talk about this. Give a listen. So let's start. I think just about everybody has at least heard the name Bernie Madoff in passing, but people might not be aware of just how large the fraud was here. Kind of give us a quick uh, remembrance here, a quick synopsis of, of what it was that Bernie Madoff did. Well, what Bernie Madoff did was engage in a rather well-known piece of fraud known as a Ponzi scheme, where you're basically bringing in new investors on the promise of a fairly large return. And then what happens is you you take the money for yourself and you use the money you get from later investors to pay the original investors their return. And, you know, one problem with Ponzi schemes is that eventually the the administrator of the scheme is going to run out of money because he's going to have, or she's going to have too many investors to pay and not enough new money coming in to be able to, you know, maintain the illusion of a real investment. Um, The thing that I think is memorable about Bernie Madoff's fraud was simply the breadth and scope and, for lack of a better way of, of putting it, the audacity of the scheme. It lasted a substantially longer period of time than most Ponzi schemes do. And what really brought it down was the financial crisis of 2008 when most of his investors needed their money back and no investors were investing on anything. And that's when it fell apart. And, you know, the numbers that have been thrown around have been from, you know, a minimum of, I think it was 17 billion in funds stolen or profits not made to at one point somebody calculated it may have been as high as 61 billion and that's a lot of money. Now what I found interesting is how he did it. He was very artful. Um, you have to remember that we're in the 1990s where there are a number of fancy different new derivative securities being created and you're beginning to see hedge funds being created and index funds and all sorts of other non-traditional investment mechanisms that are being created. And a lot of those folks are making a lot of money. So what what Bernie Madoff did, you know, and, and by the way, most Ponzi schemers, you know, collapse fairly quickly because they promise something 
that is, you know, so outrageous that people fairly early on start, you know, begin to catch up and questions begin to get asked. And then the whole thing uh, collapses. And uh, there is no, from what I know, there is no case that I have ever heard of, of a Ponzi scheme where the Ponzi schemer simply closed it down and gave all the money back. So what Bernie Madoff would do is he would promise returns that were not outrageous, that were not excessive, that were more or less similar to what some of the hedge funds and some of the more exotic derivative securities were getting in the market. So he wasn't promising outrageous returns. What he was doing was he was simply saying, you know, I can get you on a regular basis X amount of a return because I have figured out a, a strategy on just like the hedge funds of, of making this, this kind of money. What's also amazing is he did not advertise. You know, many or many Ponzi schemes uh, require you know, a lot of advertising. Uh, he, he basically built the Ponzi scheme on a highly successful, legitimate operation. And he told some selected clients that, well, you know, if you want to do this with me, I can, you know, I can get you a better return. And these folks started investing. They started getting uh, their returns paid. So the, the news of Bernie's fund basically very quickly moved by word of mouth to some investment professionals, some high liquid or high, uh, you know, high, high uh, finance individuals, some rich folks, and they created the demand. It was what Madoff did, which was also very interesting psychologically, is he rejected a lot of folks who called them to invest. And he said, no, 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 I, you know, I only do this for a limited number of people don't take too many clients, and I'm sorry, I can't take care of you. And then the person would insist and insist and insist, and Bernie would say, okay, I'll give you a break. I'll bring you into the club. So there was this sense of, you know, you're being, being brought into the inner sanctum of this club, very much like hedge funds or other things like that. And, and I think, you know, the other thing that I found amazing was that, he created a very elaborate paper trail in order to create the illusion that he was making all of these uh, stock trades. So he literally had you know, a, a separate entity from his, he had a separate entity from his legitimate operation where he had two computer programmers that were basically creating fake monthly statements for each client. And the way they did it was they were essentially monitoring the market and monitoring the trades that were being made from day to day. And then they made up trades. And since the trades were similar to real trades that were being made in the market at that time, the statements were pretty credible. It's amazing to me because I think you hear a lot about Ponzi schemes, and a lot of times it's somebody who kind of comes out of nowhere, or it's some young hustler who 
trying to to get ahead or Bernie Madoff was so well established. Like you take this out, this is a guy whose kids' kids aren't going to have to worry about things financially. I mean. That uh, that's what almost makes it so breathtaking is this guy's already at a level that most of us can only dream of and had to go through all this to just because of greed? I think so. And, you know, what's interesting is that background was what allowed him to, I think, do the scheme. And that background also prevented the authorities from really looking at him for a very long time. I mean, Bernie Madoff made his money when the markets became computerized. So he started selling, you know, small stocks, what, uh, you know, thinly traded stocks, stocks in lots of less than 100. He basically was selling small amounts of stocks to consumers. And he was able to do that because he had figured out how to computerize trading. And he was way before his time in figuring out how to computerize trading. And as a matter of fact, he was very involved in the development of computerized trading at the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, which is basic, was basically the first fully computerized stock exchange that there was. He also was the first after the SEC changed some regulatory rules to start charging commissions for volume trading. Uh, you know, now all, everybody does that. But, you know, if I keep sending you, you know, X amount of trades to execute, I want you to give me one set from each trade. And, you know, that builds up. So he made a lot of money. He And he also acquired a substantial amount of security I'm sorry, of computer expertise in doing. And I think that helped him. He knew the markets well. I think that helped them, you know, create the facade. And what I, you know, what I also find amazing is how, how he got away for, from, for, with it for so long. And I think one of the reasons is he was a very well-respected figure in the securities industry. He, you know, he was involved in all of the trade associations. He networked well. He was involved in the NASDAQ. He became the president of the NASDAQ. And, you know, he really reached the apex of his career. And by the way, he could have done that without, as you said, without engaging in this Ponzi scheme. What I think then happens is that when a complaint is made, and there was a complaint made by a competitor of his named Harry Markopoulos in about, I think, 2004 or 2005. Markopoulos sent a a memo to the SEC saying, Bernie Madoff is a fraud, and here here, here is how he is doing it. First of all, I think the SEC had trouble believing that. You know, there were all of these records. Bernie Madoff was a very respected guy, for God's sake. He was the president of the NASDAQ. You know, this is highly improbable. And I think when the when he was investigated at the first time, the first couple of times by the SEC, it was not a high-level investigation. They were using fairly low-level personnel, which is what usually happens, you know, when you start with a small investigation. If evidence comes up that shows that this is 
something a lot bigger, then it gets pushed up in the investigative uh, chain of command. You know, here you have, here you are, a, a young uh, SEC examiner, trying to investigate the president of the Nasdaq, for God's sake, to try to see if if he's committed a fraud. And from all I've read, it sounded like Bernie Madoff was a highly personable guy. And it seems like he just gave a good enough story and was a a well-respected enough individual and was so high up in Wall Street that, you know, those junior examiners were not going to continue looking unless some real smoking gun really went, you know, went in front of them. What's interesting is that that this was something that Bernie Madoff had been doing for a very, very long time. And there was actually a a consent decree that he had to enter into, I think it was in 2004 or 2005, for a slightly different scam. And the scam was this. Two accountants in his father-in-law's accounting office were selling promissory notes to investors. And they were selling the promissory notes without registering them as securities, which is required by the SEC when you sell things like promissory notes to investors in the public market. And they gave that, they took the money, they gave it to, to Bernie Madoff to invest. And then Bernie did with that money what he did with all the other money in his in his in his Ponzi scam, the accountants got caught. The SEC convicted them of civil penalties for selling unregistered securities and entered a disgorgement order requiring them and Bernie Badoff to return all the money that they had collected through these uh, promissory notes to, to the investors. And Bernie did, and what he did was he took money from other clients' accounts and used it to pay the SEC back. And what really strikes me is, you know, you can get into a case of tunnel vision and, you know, no alarm bells, I think, rang because this guy was so well-respected, you know, and and an interesting segue to that promissory note situation was that after Bernie returned the money, a bunch of the folks who got the money back sent it back to Bernie and wanted him to invest it for them. And I found that too much to belay. I did, that almost feels like if that wasn't a script, it might get taken out. No, no, that's too too unbelievable. How did this change, if at all, regulation, financial law? Were there changes put in place specifically because of the Bernie Madoff case? Well, I think there were, you know, the, the problem is this. A Ponzi scheme is very hard to catch until it collapses. I think one of the things the SEC realized, and I think they made a lot of changements in enforcement policies and investigatory policies and in in their policies and procedures for handling complaints. So I think that there is now among the regulators, you know, a much more jaundiced view of, of how to 
deal with, you know, complaints or issues that, you know, crop up. Also, I think, you know, in the last 12 years, the the stock markets and stock trading has become a lot more digitalized and a lot more computerized. So I think, you know, the very fact that, that the regulators chose to become more vigilant in their investigations and in, in, in creating audits and creating auditing records and so on and so on and so forth. And by the way, that's not necessarily foolproof. Bernie Madoff was audited a couple of times and he passed with flying colors. And you may be too old, uh, I mean, too young to remember this. There was a scam in the late 80s, early 90s. I think it was late 80s, uh, involving a company known as ZZZZ Best, which was created by a 20-year-old or a 19-year-old. And it was a company that alleged, uh, allegedly had contracts to clean office buildings at night. And, you know, the company went public, made, you know, the, the founder made, made a lot of money, and the company was audited more than once. So what the auditors do is, first of all, like, they uh, tell the, the company, okay, let me see your contracts. And then they, you know, check out the contracts. And one of the things that this young man had done is he bugged the room where the auditors were working. So the auditors would say, okay, let's check out 555 Main Street, 10th floor, see if they're really working there. So he had a couple of, of crews of people who would just show up at that building and start cleaning and nobody would say, you know, nobody would challenge. Them. So it is possible to for a really good fraudster to defeat an audit. But the more checks and balances you tend to have in place, the better. And I think one of the things that also happened is, remember that this scandal broke just at the beginning of the crisis of 2008. And one of the things the crisis of 2008 was was caused for was by all of these really, what's a good word to describe them, really unusual, let's use that word, uh, derivative securities. You know, people were securitizing every potential income stream from anything, and then we're kind of bundling them into uh, securities and selling them on the market to investors. I mean, they did that with real estate loans, and that's one of the major things I crashed. They did it with student loans. They did it with consumer loans, auto loans, rental streams, you name it. And, you know, the problem is that the value of a lot of those things is essentially what people are willing to buy and buy and sell it for. And oftentimes, you know, the the income stream that is promised is not necessarily, and it's not illegal, by the way, but it's not necessarily as steady as as the investors and the promoters uh, would think. So uh, there is, I think, or there was for a number of years. Now you're beginning to see some of these funky derivatives coming back. But I think between 2008 and 2016, there were a lot of folks in the market who were somewhat leery of derivatives and unusual 
securities. And I think you also began to see some of the hedge funds having issues. So I think, you know, I think it's a different climate. I don't think there was anything in the substantive regulations, SEC regulations at the time that, you know, had it been different, they would have caught him. I think there's a different uh, regulatory mindset. I think there's a different enforcement mechanism. I think there's more digital tools available. And, you know, one of the problems that you have with some of the newer computerized databases and the like is that it's a lot easier to tell when the database has been altered. You know, Bernie Madoff was working with a very old mainframe IBM computer system and a dot matrix printer to print his fake statements. And I think it was easier to do then, but now it's, I think, a little harder. Now, you asked me another question, which is, you know, can this happen again? Absolutely. Kind of, I want to look through the mirror a little bit on this. Bernie Madoff dies in prison at 82 in the year 2021. So we're talking, you know, he I, over a decade he spent in prison. One of the things that infuriates me just as an average citizen is the number of white-collar criminals that steal, embezzle ridiculous amounts of money and get house arrest or, you know, whatever. Do you think... And I know it was the financial crisis that led was the that was the impetus for the cascade that you know showed the emperor had no clothes with Bernie Madoff. If he's exposed, let's say five years later, five years earlier, do you think he spends more than a decade in prison? Because I think he it happened at a time where people wanted people to blame for the financial crisis, even though he wasn't directly responsible. It was close enough that people pointed to that and said, you know, and demanded hard sentences and prosecutors demanded hard sentences. Do you think if he's taken out of the financial crisis, he's punished as harshly? I think depending on when it had happened, yes. And I'll tell you why. I think in the last, since the late 90s, early 2000s, there have been a lot of complaints from ordinary citizens like us that are saying, wait a second, you know, a guy steals a car and gets, you know, 10 years in prison and a guy embezzles 20 million and gets probation or gets restitution. And I think in the last 20 years, you know, there were changes made to the federal sentencing guidelines, for example, which mandated prison terms for financial crimes and actually set the prison terms, the, the calculation of the prison terms on the amount of money that was stolen, you know, and there's, a, there's been a lot of litigation around the sentencing guidelines. But I think, you know, in the last 20 years, what has happened is that white collar criminals don't really get a free pass anymore. I think if Bernie Madoff, you know, had been caught in the 80s or the 90s, I don't think he would have gotten away scot-free. And I think the reason for it was simply the unbelievable amount of the fraud. You know, if he had stolen $100 million in an era where he wasn't the only white-collar criminal doing that, he probably would not have gotten a, uh, a very large sentence, if at all. But I think, uh, the, I think the sentence that he got would have been the same, regardless of whether we had the financial crisis. I think the fraud was so big 
and so many people were taken and so many people were furious. And so many investment firms that served as middlemen of, uh, of funds to the Madoff accounts were so outraged at having been taken that they were demanding that this guy be prosecuted. And I think he also made the case easier because he admitted the fraud. You know, and why he why he admitted the fraud? He, he there's you know there's a number of articles that say that the reason why he tried to do that and make himself as the only uh, guilty party was to try to spare his family prison terms. And that could have been the case, you know, I don't know. But I think he would have gone down and he would have gone down hard. Would he have gotten 120 years? No. But he would have, he would have died in jail. I mean, at, that, at his age, you know, any sentence over 20 years is in essence a life sentence. And my final question on the the list in American history of financial criminals, is he at the top? Oh, yeah. He's at the top, I think, for three reasons. Number one, he stole a hell of a lot more money than any other Ponzi schemer in American history identified so far. Number two, he kept it going, I think, probably for a very, very, very long time. And I think, number three, the way in which he executed it was so well-crafted that, you know, at least at the beginning, it was almost impossible to, to, uh, to figure out. I mean, you, you, they, he took a number of financial professionals involved in the markets and involved in investment. And he fooled them all. So I think he's obviously you know, at the very top of ponzi in American history and possibly world history. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.